welcome to this week's episode of Keeping It 1600. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. And uh, and this week we have a, a great episode. We have a special guest. Uh, Cal Penn is is joining the podcast. Uh, actor, activist, former White House staffer, and uh, and current Bernie Sanders supporter. Um, we, we got have- a lot of a lot of folks for, uh, on Twitter. Um, you know, suggesting that we probably should have a Bernie Sanders supporter on, which I think is totally fair after we had Hillary Clinton supporter Tom Perez on. And so we'll have Cal, who's probably the, probably the most politically involved and politically smartest celebrity we've ever worked with and a um, good friend of ours. Yes, he's not. He, Cal is not one of these celebrities that just goes out there and uh, says crazy shit on the campaign trail. He's probably the <laughs> most knowledgeable celebrity about politics and issues yep. that, that I've certainly yep. ever come across. So. Yeah, uh-huh. he literally quit his job and worked. He literally quit Hollywood and moved to DC and worked in the White House with us, which is uh, a questionable life decision. But kudos. We're happy he did. Um, okay, let's talk about this week. There were no primaries, there were no debates, and yet plenty of uh, crazy shit happened. <laughs> um, we just wanted we wanted to go through just a couple of the. It was basically Dan. I think you said this. This was like a week where everyone was really bad at politics. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, this should have been a week. You know, there's a lot at stake this week. I mean, Trump's path to 1237 depends on doing well in this, in the New York, doing very, very well in this New York primary. This is Hillary Clinton's chance to, you know, put Bernie Sanders away for all intents and purposes. And this was like idle time is a devil's plaything or whatever that statement is, because without debates or elections, people just did crazy, stupid shit. Yeah, it started with, uh, while we were taping this podcast last week, Bill Clinton was at an event and sort of uh, took on some Black Lives Matter protesters. We've had, we've taped like, this is like our fifth podcast, I think, and twice now, just as we've gotten ready to tape, something has happened. Uh, A few weeks ago, the Ted Cruz sex scandal happened right as we were going on, and we're like, we don't need to talk about that. And then just as we were taping this one last week, current producer and future White House press secretary, Tate was like, you should see this Bill Clinton video. And we're like, eh, we'll talk about that next week. Tate was and all over that. And by the time we finished, it was the number one, yeah, number one thing trending on Twitter worldwide. And so I have Twitter up just in case shit blows up while right. we're on the phone today. And typical of, of things that blow up like that, it's it's pretty much over this week. But I, I thought it was weird. I mean, these Black Lives Matters uh, protesters were, you know, were doing their thing. And Clinton sort of interrupted them and got all like finger waggy as he does these days and, and did in 2008 a couple times um, and said, you know, if you want to defend gang members sending African-American kids out into the streets who are killing other African-American kids like that, that you know, that's your business. I just don't know why he didn't say about the crime bill what he said earlier this year when he basically apologized for portions of the crime bill that went too far that kept people incarcerated too long like he had a pretty great you know apology for it earlier and you know was was very honest and i thought that was an admirable thing i just he didn't quite stick to that message this time i think they got under his skin yeah, definitely i mean politicians are human presidents are human and bill clinton may be the most human of all presidents you know we saw this in 2008 he got very pissed several times um and had some reactions and there it's a very human emotion he he felt like his wife was being attacked or treated unfairly and he reacted like a lot of spouses would this one was different in the sense that this wasn't really an attack on hillary clinton it was an attack on his record and you know he he got angry and he reacted and I thought there was the, the 
award for dumbest take of the week was the folks yes. who were out there saying that this was intentional sister soldier moment. Oh my god! And for our for our younger listeners, the sister soldier moment was a time when Bill Clinton, in running for president in 1992, criticized Sister Soldier, who was at the time um, some sort of rapper who would. Uh, said stuff about cops and that, and that was racist and offensive. And he criticized, Bill Clinton criticized Sister Soldier at um, a Jesse Jackson, a, cop, a convention for Jesse Jackson's organization. This was seen as Bill Clinton, you know, sort of, this is the beginning of the Clinton triangulation what, narrative, what, myth, whatever. What, what year can we put a moratorium on the references to Sister Soldier moments? Since it seems <laughs> to be like pundits use it in D.C. now who were around in the 90s and think that we haven't left the 90s and that everyone still knows or cares about Sister Soldier is like the most pivotal <laughs> moment in all of politics. Like no one gives a shit about that anymore. Right. And it, it makes there was a political argument for whatever the originate whatever led to Bill Clinton's original sister soldier moment that there was a political challenge for the Democratic Party at that time that he was dealing with right. here there is no political rationale for why he would do it he got angry and I can understand why he got angry I disagree substantively with a lot of things in the 90 in the 94 crime bill Bill Clinton has apologized for those but at some point if you're Bill Clinton and you feel like with I think good reason that you did a lot of very good thing for the African American community, and you're getting criticized, and, and people are saying these horrible things about you. You'll react. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. It was certainly a distraction for the Clinton campaign. I don't think it changes a single vote. But you know, we don't have that many days left between now and the New York primary, even now into November. And everyone that's spent debating Bill Clinton's reactions is one that. You know, that's that's an opportunity cost for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, and and keeping keeping the theme going uh, a couple days later. Um, there was a very awkward uh, comedy skit involving Hillary Clinton and Bill de Blasio where um, I don't I don't even know why this happened, why she was at this dinner. But it was a comedy dinner in New York City um, that happens every year with the press. And there was a skit involving a cast member from Hamilton, Hillary Clinton and Bill de Blasio, which, first of all, like, what a conceit. Um <laughs> <laughs> so Bill, Bill de Blasio uh, so Hillary Clinton walks out and she says uh, you know Bill thank you for the endorsement uh, it took you long enough which is funny in itself because Bill de Blasio was her campaign manager for her first Senate race and he has like taken a long time to endorse her because he hasn't been as you know favorable towards her as he should have been right or as people expected him to be so funny joke and then he looks at her and he goes sorry Hillary I was on CPT and you see her groans from the audience, and the Hamilton cast member says, oh, we don't like jokes like that. And Hillary says, no, no, no. He meant cautious politician time. Now, <laughs> this, was, this was all <laughs> scripted and planned in advance. This is not an off-the-cuff thing. I mean, as, as someone who's right. been involved in, uh, in, in joke writing for, for politicians, it's, it's a dicey business. I get that, and I get that it's very easy to go over the edge. Um, but it was just it was just poor humor more than anything else. And also, if you watch the right. video, the far worse thing in that video is um, before that happens, Bill de Blasio is out there and he's actually rapping about, quote, my homegirl Hillary, which just don't yeah. do it. It's like, here's what if you're a political operative, right, you work on a campaign, you work for politician, write on a piece of paper. No Holocaust references, 
No slavery comparison. <laughs> Don't use the word colored. Don't let your boss rap. Tape that piece of paper on your bathroom mirror and look at it every day when you brush your teeth. Like, it's not that hard. And people forget how people forget it, right? Every once in a while, as you say, like a politician will, will do something off the cuff and make a mistake. That'll happen. But like, if you put it in the script, that's on you, right? And it's on you. That, and it's just like, what are we doing? Yeah, it was. Uh, but anyway, so you know what? Hillary's going to win by a lot. <laughs> New York, yeah. so they're probably they're probably fine. Uh, yeah. The other the other thing we wanted to mention this uh, that happened yesterday was um, there was a story about this. This is in the cat. This is a new category I want to have on our podcast, which is called uh, Ted Cruz is still pretty batshit crazy. <laughs> lest lest we forget because we're too focused on yeah. Donald Trump and we think that Ted Cruz is a quote unquote normal nominee. Um, Ted Cruz was involved uh, as Solicitor General in Texas in 2007 with a case where uh, they tried to ban all sex toys from the state of Texas. And the, the, um, the reasoning that Cruz used in his argument was that um, no, one has a, uh, no one has a right to stimulate one's genitals. <laughs> was, was a legal argument made by Ted Cruz in Texas in 2007. Um, so the best part was... Uh, Craig Mazin, who is a screenwriter here in L.A., who, if Ted Cruz is the nominee, we like we have to get Craig on this show and just because he, he is the Ted Cruz whisperer. Anyway, we should have him anyway. We should like, have him anyway. Craig, he was he, at us. <laughs> please, he was Cruz's roommate. Um, this is why he's important, and um, he's important because he's a successful screenwriter. But for us, it's because he was his roommate. Um, and so he tweeted yesterday: Ted Cruz thinks people don't have a right to quote stimulate their genitals. I was his college roommate. This would be a new belief of his. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like this election is amazing on so many levels, right? Like just being nailed for masturbation hypocrisy is just like an just it's an amazing thing that could happen. Yeah. And like so many thoughts on this. One, <laughs> I'm glad you have masturbation is going to put you on the. Right. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um, <laughs> being against masturbation is going to put you on the wrong side of a lot of people, first point. So maybe props to Ted Cruz for taking a, courageous, a politically courageous position. Second is... I spoke out against masturbation, and they didn't clap. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And <laughs> they didn't clap. So you can go so far with that. Um, they And the other reason for our young listeners out there, if you are headed to college and you think... You may want to be president one day. Be nice to your college roommate. <laughs> yeah, no like, shit. <laughs> they are going to be an important. They when when you are running for president, someone there the press is going to call your college roommate, and you want them to say nice things. So just keep that in the back of your head. Uh, I think that's good advice. Um, and then the last small thing that happened yesterday was um, it was reported in the Hollywood Reporter that. One person in America has received advanced screeners of season six of Game of Thrones, and that person is our old friend Barack Obama. So screw him. This, that's right. Maybe we left the White House too soon. This, this created. This is not like a real controversy, but there was some outrage on Twitter. I tweeted about it as a joke, and I got a lot of people. Who was pissed off? Was anyone about. pissed off that we can call out on the air that has a job in the media? <laughs> I, or was Chris just, Lizzo was pissed, but I think it was. Oh, he was sort of joking. I don't yeah. think it was. Yeah, I don't think it was true outrage, but there were some eggs on Twitter who thought that um, 
this represented some sort of corruption. There were some suggestions that the president should threaten congressional Republicans with spoilers if um, they don't confirm Merrick Garland, which I thought was smart. That is smart. And like my view on this is president is a hard job. You don't get to leave the house that often. If you want to see Game of Thrones before everyone else, like you should do that. And I think Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Paul Ryan, whoever's president, if the, whoever the next Republican president is, they should also get Game of Thrones. It was, and it, it, it really was the, um, it, it made me, it was the first time I really regretted leaving the White House because if, if we yeah. were still there, you can tell that he's just throwing up those screeners in the conference room on Air Force One while, uh, while they're, they're flying around playing spades. <laughs> yeah. I, like we would be like in the outer oval, like trying to butter up ferry all the president's, uh, personal assistant to try to get copies of the screeners so we could take them home. No doubt. And I, we should note for our listeners that the president is a huge Game of Thrones fan. Yeah, it's his. You know, I think it's his. It is, if not, it's his favorite show. It's one of his favorite shows. He thinks a lot about. He thinks it's a great show about politics, um, which I'm not sure what that says about his experience. I was, from the I was last just going to say, yeah, but, the president bases his political yeah, yeah. agenda on Game of Thrones. He's so. he's breaking the wheel. Um, so that was this week. Uh, and the, the the actual substantive thing that happened this week was that uh, Paul Ryan came out and, and told everyone that he uh, will not accept the nomination for president should he be uh, given it at the Republican convention in Cleveland, which, hey, no shit. <laughs> 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 On this podcast yeah. last week, we predicted that. Yes. Area man announces he won't commit political suicide. I mean, there's of course, there's still yeah. – I just saw a story – yesterday afternoon or this morning, I think Ryan Lizza did one that said, yes, Paul Ryan is still running because the only way he can actually get the nomination and and pretend that he's trying to unify the party is if he says unequivocally that he will not accept the nomination. I'm just like, what's it going to take? But like right now, the streets of D.C. are flooded with the tears of (laughs) the establishment Republicans. Like they are so sad. And the reporters who believe who feel like their life is better if they can believe in this, you know, false equivalency, both parties are equal thing, or so sad. And yeah, like, like they want a darling of the Republican running. Party. Right, yeah, there's no, it's, it's hard if it's like Hillary Clinton, who they don't really like that much, and then Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, who they really don't like, or know that people don't like. Like, I think he's not running. I don't think he was ever running. Even if he wanted to run, he would not win. Um... And but like this is probably good for our friends. I guess they're our friends or not in the hashtag Never Trump movement. Yes, um, because this was a distraction, right? Like you have to like my belief is now they have to come to terms with the fact that they're going to spend their next several months and their millions and millions of dollars and all their energy to nominate Ted Cruz. Which is a crazy thing you can think about, considering how they all feel about Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. But any view around some sort of savior is a distraction from the fact that Cruz is the only legitimate option to be the nominee other than Trump. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty real. I mean, look, I, I yeah. do think the idea that it's going to be. You're right. Like the idea that this is going to someone who's not Trump or Cruz right now. It's hard to believe because. I, I still think that what's underreported is how great Ted Cruz's organization is. Um, and on the second ballot, you know, when you have a bunch of, if we get to a second ballot, if Trump doesn't get 1237 and he doesn't win on the first ballot, then 
you have a lot of unbound delegates, but if you have a bunch of delegates that are loyal to Ted Cruz that are handpicked by the Cruz campaign, then the idea that those delegates are going to Rubio or Kasich or some other person, it just it seems hard to believe at this point, you know? Yeah, the fact that you would overturn the will of like 80-some percent of the Republican voters right. and some other person. And Trump had, or, you know, there has been rank incompetence on the Trump campaign, which we'll get to in a second, in terms of getting delegates. Cruz has been very good at this. He's like the only guy in the Republican Party who knows how to play the game right now. Yeah. And it, NBC went and looked at this and said that looking at all the delegates that Cruz has gotten elected at these state conventions, that he looks to pick up 130, um, de- 130 votes on the second ballot. So these right. are people who are pledged to cr- Trump on the first ballot or unbound who ha- now have Cruz or Republican established non-Trump people in those slots because Trump could not figure out how to submit a coherent delegate slate. <laughs> So right now he's only down 211 pledged delegates. So, and that number will go up with these coming contests. But you know he's done a, he's put himself in a position where it's very hard to pick someone other than Cruz. Yes. No. I think I think that's right. And so now the question is, um, can Trump get there? Which is the question that's been hanging over our heads for a while. Um, so he he made some moves this week. First of all, he's been sort of quiet. It's funny that in our list of crazy shit that happened this week, uh, Donald Trump was not in there. Um, he did not. He did not say anything ridiculous this week, or at least uniquely ridiculous for him. Um, but he tried to. He made some hiring moves that were interesting. Uh, Paul Manafort, uh, who he's going to have run his the delegate process and the organization at the convention, uh, who has some experience doing this and also has some experience, um, you know, uh, representing clients who've recruited child soldiers and put landmines in schoolyards. But that. <laughs> That's another. That's a whole other issue for Paul Manafort. Um, so he did that, and then he also hired Rick Wiley, who was Scott Walker's campaign manager, a forty a former Rudy Giuliani deputy campaign manager, like helped the Republicans take back the Senate in twenty fourteen. So Rick Wiley is like a legitimate Republican operative, really skilled at organization. The Manafort pick is interesting because. He's everything that Trump has railed against for the last year, yeah. right? Lobbyist, Republican Party establishment. Like, he's a Bob Dole guy. Like, you can't get much more establishment than that. <laughs> and, you know, worked at, like, a premier lobbying firm and represented all these, like, pretty compelling clients that you mentioned. And then Rick Wiley is interesting, like, knows how to run campaigns. Um, not Scott Walker's campaign, but generally campaigns. Um but the thing, the other th- interesting thing about Rick Wiley, and a lot of the Republicans that we respect were on Twitter and in the press yesterday saying this was a real good, legitimate hire. So I believe that. But one of the problems that Trump has right now is that his organization, is, his campaign organization, is fighting with each other and in disarray. And I'm not sure Rick Wiley is a force for good since he spent much of his time at the end of the Walker campaign uh-huh. explaining to the press why <laughs> Walker's failure was not his fault. And, like, that to me is always a huge black mark um, yeah. for a political operative when you lose your campaign, if you're immediately out there in the press spinning it as the candidate's fault. Um, Feels like a loyalty issue. And so there was a – right, definitely. And so there was a pretty interesting Politico story yesterday about the Wiley hiring and the Manafort hiring and the state of the uh, Trump campaign. 
and in it it said that there's two camp Manafort and Wiley have Manafort now with Wiley have like taken over and they're really making all the decisions and Corey Lewandowski um, of assault charge fame has been will not be prosecuted uh, sort of, by the way Corey free, will not free be prosecuted court, yeah. <laughs> That's what goes for good news in the Trump camp these days. And, um, our our with, glorified with bouncer of a campaign manager won't be prosecuted for, <laughs> for battery. Three cheers. That's right. Yeah. And so there's sort of two camps, but definitely the Manafort-Wiley camp's in charge, and there are people loyal to Corey and people loyal to these new people. And it said in the story that, you, that they have, because things are in such a disarray, that they have... Re- blocked access to the staff directory in the Trump campaign so that people can know who's getting hired and fired. Oh, my God, really? It seems like a really bad sign. So like, so how they, do they call each other? They have, like, all staff email addresses, and you don't know who it's going to. <laughs> You're just yeah, sending really, emails out into um, the ether. That's bad. Yeah. And, you know, like, there are a thousand reasons that Trump would be a terrible president, in my view. Um and in the view of about two-thirds of Americans, according to the new Washington Post yeah, poll out record. today. Yeah, 70% but, of, uh, disapproval. But how you run your campaign is indicative, not entirely of how you would be president, but it is a sign as to whether you can have, whether you can, like, run an organization. And Absolutely. For, and Trump's campaign is not, uh, it's pretty, it's like, it's amazing that he has really, kicked everyone's ass because he has run an absolutely miserable campaign. So I don't know whether that says he has great candidate skills, which he sort of does. The other candidates were terrible. The other candidates ran really bad campaigns, probably all of all of the above in some way, shape, or form. But the, I mean, well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It'll be interesting to see, like, also, when you're losing, all these things seem terrible. But for after all of this, staff, staff directory, blockage, everything else, He's like right around getting fifty percent of the vote in New York, and if he does that, you know, maybe this maybe this stuff doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I mean, here's what I'm looking for. There was an RNC. There was a member of the RNC Rules Committee on yesterday um, on MSNBC who said that if Trump gets eleven hundred by uh, June seventh, when California votes and all the primaries are done, he'll he'll be the nominee because between June 7th and Cleveland, you have time to flip a bunch of unbound delegates. There's a bunch of unbound delegates that are going to be going into the convention with no loyalties to anyone. Some of them come from states like Pennsylvania, which just leaves its delegates unbound, and some of them come from all over the country. So there is an opportunity if Trump doesn't hit 1237 on June 7th, we should say, where he can get to it by Cleveland, right? So the question is, the questions left for Trump, right, are... He's going to win New York by a lot. He's going to win a lot of these northeastern states by a lot. He's going to lose a lot of these western states and midwestern states that remain to Ted Cruz. We all know that. The states that I think we don't know, that there's not a lot of good polling on, that the really smart folks at 538 and other delegate people um, don't know about are Indiana and California. Indiana comes like May 3rd. But then it really all boils down to California. Like, I think the importance of California in this process has been a little understated because it is the last primary. It is, it awards delegates, it awards like maybe 13 delegates statewide or some small number like that. And then 
it's basically 53 separate primaries and 53 different congressional districts that all award to uh, award their delegates to the person who wins that district. And there's not great polling there so far. And we don't know who's ahead. And it's all about organization. And we know Trump's not good at organization, but also some of these recent hires, maybe, you know, maybe Trump has all this focus on California now. And also, Whoever wins California, you got to think like that's the last bit of momentum leading into the convention. And so in a, in a world where Trump ekes it out in California and wins a bunch of delegates there and he's close to 1237, you know, does that does that switch? Does that change minds or persuade some of these unbound delegates to jump on board before Cleveland? I don't know. What do you think? I think the, I mean, the California thing is interesting. I think it's wonderful for us who moved to California in the last year or so that yeah. our primary is going to count and we can watch this insanity um, up close. Although I live in San Francisco, so I don't run into a lot of Trump supporters on the street necessarily. But um, the, I think the, or, I think the, the, the size of the state is actually going to benefit Trump. And that's because the, it's so big, the bigger the state, particularly yeah. with a short time frame, the more it dilutes your organizational advantage. There's a reason that. that Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz do better in these smaller states because they can, you can pull a lever. You just can't scale, particularly on the budget these, these campaigns have, organizations in a six-week period in 53 congressional districts. It's just not really feasible. The more, pe- the more on-the-ground volunteers you have, the better you're going to do, no doubt. But it's just hard. I mean, Hillary Clinton beat our organization was better everywhere in the country in Hillary Clinton. And it was better in California, but we got beat here in part because we couldn't, there's only, you can't register enough voters with your small staff to like move the numbers. You can't, um, you know, you can't, it's, it's, just, it's hard to scale an organization in a state like this. And it'll be interesting to see, TV ads will probably matter here a little bit more than they would in other states. As the voters mm-hmm. here have not been as exposed to the campaign. You know, but, but the, it depends on how much money the the never Trump folks have to spend because it's you know you're you're spending tens Big of millions markets. of dollars here if you want to make it if you want to make a real difference and they're um, gonna, they're going to try to you know, pick we, off delegates in these yeah. districts where there's like eighty percent Democratic voters and twenty percent Republican voters right because then you're getting more bang for yeah. your buck and so like you know like Nancy Pelosi's congressional district <laughs> is going to award some delegates to a Republican. And the question is, like, can you go find those Republicans in that district if you're Ted Cruz or Donald Trump and and get their votes? And, you know, you could spend probably less money than you would in a heavily Republican district in California and still get the same amount of delegates. Now, that's inter- that's an interesting strategy. Um, finding Republicans in Nancy Pelosi's district will be challenging, but Ted Cruz's campaign is organized enough and sophisticated enough, I think, to be able to use their data to find those people. Trump, there's no chance Trump's campaign has any idea where any of the voters are in any of these districts. And even if you look, if you like follow smart um, reporters and operatives that like, you know, Patrick Ruffini on the Republican side or like the guys at 538 or or Harry Enten or any any of those guys, you, you like, they will all tell you that where Trump's Trump's travel makes zero sense from a delegate perspective. Yeah. Okay, our guest on the show this week is Cal Penn. Uh, Cal 
was the uh, associate director uh, for the White House Office of Public Engagement. He's an actor, an activist, and a current Bernie Sanders supporter and a good friend of the podcast. Thank you, Cal, for uh, for joining us today. Thanks, Welcome guys. Welcome to Keeping It 1600. <laughs> nice. What um what made you? I was going to ask what what made you first start knocking on doors for Obama. Um, you were one of the the first endorsers, supporters of Obama way back in in 2007. I met you uh, knocking on doors in Iowa uh, right before the caucuses, and you were probably maybe the hardest working surrogate we had. And then uh, and then joined up with the uh, with the White House staff. What uh, had you always been interested in politics, or were you just sort of in, inspired by the Obama campaign? I had been, um, and by the way, fla- flattering intro, but there were only three surrogates, so the hardest working is not by much <laughs> at, the, at the time, back in October of, of 07. Uh, Good point. But, uh, no, you know, I was always interested in politics, but I was um, I was always an independent. Um, that may or may not change this cycle, let's see. But uh, but I, I always had an interest in, in public service, and that kind of goes back to my grandparents. My grandparents marched with Gandhi in the Indian independence movement, and so those were stories that I would hear at the dinner table growing up. Um, but it was never put in the context of politics. It was always put in the context of sort of family values or doing the right thing. Um, and it wasn't until probably middle school or high school when we started really learning about the civil rights movement and and how, uh, you know, how, how Gandhian philosophy impacted Dr. King that I kind of took a step back and said, wait a second. So, like, Grandpa has all these stories that I really need to be asking him because it's not just dinner table conversation. Um, and so from that point, it, it kind of became still less about politics and more about kind of doing the right thing if you if you feel strongly about something. Um, so, I mean, cut to 2007, there was, you know, I, I had friends who were serving overseas and I had uh, in Iraq um, and Afghanistan and I had uh, friends who couldn't afford college and student loans. And I felt kind of fortunate at that point because I um, I was, you know, I was on a TV show. I was able to not just put a roof over my head to pay some of those bills down and not everybody was uh, – so fortunate. I also thought it was ridiculous that, you know, you kind of have to be a TV actor in order to do that nowadays. And most people, of course, are not. Uh, so I I, uh, I decided to, to volunteer for the president's campaign also because there was a writer strike in Hollywood at the time. So uh, yes. the Screen Actors Union went on, went on strike uh, and the timing couldn't have been better. Um, so I just sort of signed up and ended up in Des Moines for three months. How... I mean, it was a, I mean, a lot of people, you were one of the first ones, and you certainly worked the hardest, but we had a lot of people from Hollywood and music and entertainment who ended up volunteering on the campaign in some way, shape, or form. Very few of them knocked doors in Iowa like you did. Um, but when the campaign was over, they all went back to their careers, and you made a different decision, and you joined us in the White House, um, just a staffer like the rest of us. Um, tell us about that decision and, you know, what that was like. Yeah, so I think for, you know, my story is probably actually very similar to a lot of other people who took a leave from whatever their private sector careers were. You know, you had people in in domestic policy council who were pediatricians and CEOs and things like that. So I I would sort of say I'm not that different than folks like that who just put something on hold for two or four years or whatever it was. Um, In my case, it was, uh, there there was a, it kind of led up to, you know, I knew that the the, uh, the president-elect at that point was expanding the public engagement office. I had actually applied stupidly on on change.gov or whatever website we had set up for, to to like steer <laughs> to steer people towards 
towards jobs. And I kind of casually at inauguration mentioned it to a couple of people, literally not fishing for a job, but just kind of trying to make small talk with people I hadn't <laughs> seen in a while. Um, and, uh, and everyone was kind of like, you're an idiot. Why didn't you just call somebody if you really wanted a job in the administration? And I, my only rebuttal was like, well, I don't want to call in any favors. I mean, I just kind of figured if if there's a need that I could, you know, if I'm good at something, then great. And if not, then no. Uh, and it just so happened that, that since the president was, was expanding this public engagement office, they were looking for um, – they only had the funding and capacity for one staffer, and they needed somebody to handle youth outreach, Asian-American outreach, and arts outreach. So those were three separate jobs. Um, and so the timing just w- was sort of great as far as that went. And I, you know, I, I decided right, I'm going to take a leave from this show. Um, I was on house at the time. Uh, that leave turned into we're going to kill your character off. So I'm like, okay, it's a little, <laughs> little more than just a year. But the goal was to do a year, um, and the goal was also to, to focus primarily on youth outreach, which is what I mostly focused on on the on the campaign. Um, and uh, and after I think I think it was about eight months of balancing both. Um, and thinking I was only going to stay for a year and realizing very quickly that nothing in D.C. gets done in a year. So there are all these things I was working on that I kind of thought, all right, I'm going to stay for a second year because I want to see healthcare get through and don't I still tell you repealed and Pell Grants and all that. Uh, so then the next thing you know, it was two years uh, and it was hard, you know, it's always hard to replace a staffer. So I stayed for, I think, closer to two and a half um, and then transitioned to the reelect and went back to making movies. But But I think the reason I kind of, I'm not trying to downplay it. I just think that's a story that's really similar to a lot of us who did, either didn't have career political experience or um, or came from another walk of life and intended to always go back to that. M- meanwhile, your uh, your resume is still in the spam folder of uh, somewhere at change.gov. <laughs> yeah, who has that now, by the way? <laughs> it turned into healthcare.gov. Yeah, you might get a call from the president-elect in like nine months. <laughs> yeah. So, Still looking? <laughs> so you, um, in in this election, you have chosen. Uh, you're feeling the burn. Um, can you uh, can you tell us why you ended up going with with Bernie over Hillary? Because I, I know that was a choice for. It's been a choice for a lot of people that I don't think was the easiest yeah. choice. I like I like Bernie Sanders. It's not like I'm you know I'm not I'm not one of these people who's 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 really intense on on. Uh, on disliking him at all, but um, yeah, I, I, I was wondering sort of what what made you go with it because we've talked about this a lot. Yeah, I, I'm actually of, of a similar uh, you know uh, thinking where I, I obviously don't hate Hillary Clinton or despise her or anything like that. In fact, we you know, obviously working in the administration, she was a Secretary of State when I was there and did a fantastic job. I thought um, for me, it kind of actually goes back to '07 and '08, where one of the one of the primary reasons I joined the president's campaign issue-wise, in addition to Iraq and student loans and things like that, was the uh, his willingness to reject federal lobbyist money and special interest money in his campaign. And he made that decision when he truly was an underdog and when everybody sort of said, you know, you're stupid for doing this, you're never going to get elected. And and uh, and I thought that, you know, there, there's something to be said for that. Um, my feelings about rejecting special interest money only grew having worked in the administration, because when you would see, you know, I'm of the belief that one of the reasons, and Pfeiffer, you obviously probably know this differently and much more in depth than I do just in public engagement, but one of the things I remember hearing over and over again was, you know, this stuff took so long because we couldn't get Democrats on board necessarily. Um, And the ones who were on the fence about voting for ACA were sort of asking for favors of the president. You know, how many... uh, 
how many reelect events will you do in my district if I vote for this bill? And he consistently, for the most part, said, that's not what this is about. You should vote no if you're trying to get me to do things. You should vote yes if you think it's the best option for um, for your constituents. And I, I thought, you know, this, unlike previous administrations on both parties, this means that things are going to take a lot longer. But this really is what he meant when he said we have to change the culture by, by rejecting con- you know special influence and special interest money. So cut to eight years later, I sort of felt, Secretary Clinton, obviously incredibly qualified. Bernie Sanders, obviously incredibly qualified. But uh, among things like uh, the Iraq War and some of the some of that type of judgment, I I kind of felt, well, look, it's a primary. There's a primary for a reason, right? It gives voters a chance to decide uh, based on a certain set of uh, certain set of information or certain paradigms. And I I still feel passionately that we should divorce um, lobbyist money from from campaigns. Yeah. So this is one of the things that sort of gets me and. Like, I, I, I was very proud of us in 07 and 08, too, for not taking lobbyist money. And I do I think there's too much money in politics. I think it has undue influence on the process. The thing I, I sort of worry about is you hear an argument, you hear the argument from Sanders and a lot of his supporters sometimes that, I mean, well, he, there was a speaker last night at a rally who said that we don't have, we don't have uh, Medicare for all because of all the Democratic corporate whores in, in Congress, which he apologized for, and then Sanders did. And the whore, the whore thing aside, if you could do that, um, I mean, do, I, I don't, I don't actually believe that we don't have Medicare for all because there's, there's, a, I don't think money, and I don't think like the insurance industry contributions um, are why Democrats didn't want the public option, didn't want Medicare for all. I sort of think it's because a lot of constituents already had health care and it's hard to get people to change and making the argument is really tough. And sometimes Democrats are, you know, they, I don't think they're necessarily corrupt, but I think they certainly are scared of a lot, <laughs> scared of losing. So I guess I guess I just have a different diagnosis of the problem. And I, I wonder what you think. Do you think that it's the influence of like Barack Obama took money from Wall Street, right? Like we had fundraisers on Wall Street. Yeah. He still passed right. pretty tough Wall Street reform. Probably not as, and, and I don't think Wall Street reform isn't tougher because Obama took that money. I think it's because it was really hard to convince a bunch of Democrats and Republicans to take the leap and, and have tougher reform. But I don't know. Maybe you disagree. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right for that piece, but I would kind of counter it by saying, look at you know, for ACA, the type of buy-in we needed from big pharma. We didn't have to worry about because we didn't take big pharma money during the campaign. But members of Congress absolutely had to worry about their, you know, their pharma lobbyists and what ACA was going to do to them, which is one of the reasons that ACA kind of unraveled the way it did. And and you didn't have single single payer, and you had you know you had what we have now, which I think is is incredible, and we should build on it. Um, but I think part of the reason that that both Democrats and Republicans, but frankly Republicans weren't really going to vote for it anyway. So you had Democrats who were worried about those ties they had to people who were funding their campaigns. I think you're right that, you know, they, they were looking out for their reelect as they should, but, you know, that's part of their jobs, I guess. But, but I, I would kind of counter it and say the big pharma piece is, is an opposite example of that, where I think in spite of a president who could divorce himself from, from that, you still had to get the votes from people who were accepting that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's go back to where we were, all three of us were this point eight years ago. And, you know, we were the Obama campaign was in the same position the Clinton campaign is right now, um, where we had a significant delegate lead. You know, the math was very clear that it was going to be, if not actually pretty close to impossible for uh, Hillary Clinton to make up that deficit with us. 
Right. And so now you're, we're sitting there, and Bernie Sanders is in a in a harder position than Obama was in because he had, Hillary's lead is actually larger than Obama's over Hillary was. What you know, if, like as a Bernie Sanders supporter, what do you see as the path uh, to the nomination? How do these this next um, you know eight weeks or six eight weeks, whatever, just play itself out? I think it's a couple things. I think you know if you if you and this is kind of this is the funny thing I was thinking about this the last couple of weeks, like not actually being. You know, I've been helping out on the campaign, but I'm by no means in it the way that I was in it in, in 07 and 08. And so it's really it's funny to, to not have internal talkers the way that we did, mm-hmm. or like internal info, like here's our real strategy and here's what we're saying to get there. Um, so I'm always really curious both for, for about the Bernie and Hillary camps, what their internal strategy is versus what they're kind of projecting. But um, but I mean, I think they're, they're clearly banking on New York, both of them. I think just the fact that Bernie's made inroads in New York is, is pretty incredible. Um, I think they're, they're banking on superdelegate switching, which, you know, is a strategy similar, I think, to what we were banking on, where we were trying to convince uh, some superdelegates to, quote, do the right thing, other superdelegates to say, okay, even though people in this area voted um, in greater numbers for for uh, Senator Clinton at the time, we still think you should come over and, you know, do the right thing and vote for, for Obama. So I think there's a little bit of that probably going on. Um and I think they're just they're just hoping for an expanded electorate. It seems like their biggest strategy, which makes sense, right, is they're appealing to people who haven't necessarily voted before, which tends to be uh, people of color, younger folks, um, who have either been excluded from the process or you know recently turned eighteen and are voting for the first time. So we'll see. I, I don't know their numbers. I know we had obviously huge voter reg numbers going into seven and 08, both, um, particularly for you know for our campaign, and that's what pushed us in, in a lot of these states. I don't know what their numbers are in the remaining states, but I assume that's that's part of their strategy. The only, yeah, I guess the only difference with us was we were trying to get superdelegates to switch because Obama was the leader in pledge delegates. And so our argument was, don't you want to, don't you want to reflect the will of the people um, and, and yeah. come over? It's, it feels like a harder task for Bernie to say. Now, I guess what they're doing is because in like state by state, if Bernie won a state and that superdelegate is for Hillary, then they say, okay, well, well, we won your state. Why wouldn't you come with us? But I guess numbers wise, I don't know if that gets him there. You know, I mean, it feels like it feels like he has to have a massive victory in some of these states, like 20, 30 points um, that are coming up. Yeah, look, there's no doubt it's an it's an uphill battle. I think that um, that the way that he's poisoning himself is you're absolutely right. Saying, look, we won. I don't know the numbers in front of me, but what, seven, we won seven out of the last nine states, or we won 12 states and she won 15, so it's really closer than everybody thinks. And if you use that paradigm, obviously it, it looks like it is. But I think that kind of thing actually keeps and gets a lot more people excited who had not been included in the process before. And maybe I'm going to sound a little too moderate as a as a Bernie supporter here, but mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for that. I think yeah. um, you know, Hillary is doing a terrible job with, with young people. I don't know who her youth vote director is, but if she's the nominee, I would love to have a conversation with that person and be helpful at some point. But because <laughs> it's kind of shocking, right? You would think that after eight years of policies that have really benefited um, young people, and you know, you've got Bernie who's really capitalizing on that youth movement and wanting to expand it so much more. I, I'm I'm pretty surprised that as great as Secretary Clinton is and as qualified as she is, also that she hasn't made some of that inroads. But I think part of the part of the Bernie strategy is to include more voters, and I think ultimately that's a really good thing too. So, um, so even if you're, I think what you're talking about, which is clearly the uphill math battle, versus you know that thing that we would have to counter all the time 
in the form of voter suppression, where if people feel like it's harder to vote, they're actually not going to vote. All the, all the data that Plus had pulled that said, don't, you know, even though we know it's an uphill battle in these districts and these states, please don't ever say when you're on the campaign trail, we know how hard it is to vote, but. And so I think that's part of the strategy also with the Bernie campaign is focusing on the victories and focusing on how people can be part of something that they feel strongly about, as opposed to focusing on the hurdles that are that are in their way. How, how do you keep these, how do you keep young people involved in the political process? And this goes beyond just Bernie and Hillary, though, you know, you can talk about that, but you've obviously been spent a lot of times on, on, on youth issues and issues of voting and getting young people involved. And I think it's one of the biggest, you know, challenges as a party going forward is that we know young people lean progressive, right? But that they also don't show up in the midterms and they're, it's hard to get them excited. And I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, so I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that they don't show up. And the reason that I say that is you're looking at a group that ages into the demographic and they mm -hmm. never age out, right? So or when they age out, they're part of a new demographic. So every time you look at youth vote numbers, you're not looking at the same static group of people. That's a good point. And that's not the case for women or African-Americans, Asian-Americans, LGBT folks, right? So so in that sense, it's that fluctuation is a little bit misleading because it requires a constant uh, effort on on the part of each political party to make sure people are registered. Um, but I, I think I mean, all of the evidence from both 07 and 2012 and my time at the White House was that um, anyone, really even 17 to 25-year-olds, they're voting based on issues, and they're not single-issue voters. So when you reach out – and by the way, they're not, they, they despise negativity. So if you look back at our 07 and 2012 campaign ads, anything that was digital or on MTV or YouTube or was geared towards young people, none of it was, here's why McCain and Romney suck. It was all, especially 2012, right, where we had to go negative about certain things to defend some of the president's accomplishments. It was like, we, we, we can go negative on CNN, we can go negative in places where we have to make that contrast, but still for young people, you have to make them feel empowered because they're not single-issue voters and they really feel like they can be part of a solution to something. And and I think that that's one of the contrasts you're seeing in the current campaign where, you know, you have Sanders who's kind of being uplifting and and, uh, and even if some of the stuff he's saying is populist and some of the stuff he's saying is, you know, has a, you know, you're, you're aiming for a thousand percent, you might only get three percent. Uh, in the form of a victory, if, if he's president, that 3% is still a pretty huge victory over nothing. I think people are feeling like, well, you're hearing a pragmatist argument from, from Secretary Clinton, and that doesn't resonate as well with young people. And it's not about tweeting something cute or doing a fun you know, video. Um, for most of these kids, it's about a lot more than that. I, I remember all those events, right? We went to what, 26 or 27 states in, in 2008, and hundreds of surrogate events that that we did, and this is just actor, actor and musician circuits. We would always perform or do a stump speech and then have probably about 30 minutes for questions. And I would say in all of those hundreds of campuses, maybe 10 times we got questions about movies. And the rest of the time, it was all questions about uh, policy and Obama. And I, I, I think that that's certainly something I've seen going on the trail for Sanders as well. Uh, but I, I think that ties into what's important to them, right? They're, they don't have uh, there are no civics classes really in most high schools so they're learning the processes they go but they they know exactly what they can and can't afford they know the job market they know their student loans they know healthcare and they want answers to those questions all right dude we will let you uh, go back get back to the campaign trail but thank you so much for uh, for for joining the podcast and uh, and 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 good luck out there thanks for having
having me on. I've heard uh, you know a lot of a lot of great buzz and many many um, retweets and Twitter traffic on your podcast. So thanks for having me on. That's what we live for. All right, Cal, take it easy. <laughs> See you soon. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Keeping It Sixteen Hundred. You can follow us on Channel Thirty Three on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks everyone. See you guys next week.